Matthew 19, 13 through 30. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. So how do I enter the kingdom of heaven? How do I enter the kingdom of heaven? You know, we've agreed that this Advent season, we're going to continue our study through Matthew's gospel. But like I said two weeks ago, we're specifically going to look at passages that talk about the kingdom of heaven. So we're going to skip around a little bit. And we want to look at these passages about the kingdom of heaven because every Christmas season we sing, Joy to the world, the Lord has come, let earth receive her king. So we believe that the first Christmas, a king was born. And friends, a king brings with him a kingdom. So what is this kingdom like? What is the kingdom like that Jesus brought that first Christmas? And specifically, the question that we're asking today is, how do I enter into that kingdom? Today's passage begins with children. Children welcomed and blessed by the king. In verses 13 through 15, children come and Jesus lays hands on their heads, which was a common way of blessing children, blessing the next generation. 
And in our culture today, we look at that and go, well, sure, that's, that seems absolutely normal. That seems wonderful they would do that. But our culture is very child-centric. In their culture, in that day, children, if they were noticed at all, were considered a nuisance. As you see the disciples trying to, to shoo the children away. But here's Jesus, the king, founding a new people in a new kingdom. And what's he doing? Laying hands, blessing the children over the objections of his all too grown up disciples. And why is he doing that? He's doing it because as we saw one chapter ago in Matthew chapter 18, verses 2 and 3, Jesus, it says, calling them to them a child, Jesus put him in the midst of them and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. How can I enter the kingdom of heaven? Become like children. Friends, it's not about earning or deserving. The kingdom of heaven can only be received humbly like a child. Friends, children have nothing. They offer nothing. They contribute nothing. They receive everything. And Jesus says that is how you receive the kingdom. That's how you receive the kingdom. That's how you enter the kingdom. And church, in every generation, we find that children lead the way into the kingdom of heaven. It's estimated that over 85% of decisions to follow Jesus are made by children. Children quite literally lead the way into the kingdom. This is why our church must always value children's ministries and always value noisy sanctuaries. We must always excitedly staff Sunday school and nursery. We must do all that we can to come alongside to equip and support and encourage parents as they seek to disciple their children. Because we believe what Jesus taught right here in verse 14 today. Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Friends, to enter the kingdom of heaven, you must become like a child, Jesus says. And have you? Will you? Now, immediately following this event, and I think that this is purposeful, we find a young man coming to Jesus. Uh, he's often called the rich young ruler because he was most likely a, a ruler in the local synagogue. And he came to Jesus with a similar question. How do I enter the kingdom of heaven? Verses 16 and 17. Behold, a man came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you ask me about what's good? There's only one who's good. And if you'd enter life, keep the commandments. Now, friends, what Jesus is kind of doing here with this man is he's calling him out. He's calling him out because he says, hey, listen, you're interested in an academic debate, not obedience. You're interested in an academic debate. And in fact, you're using your academic debate to avoid obedience. Jesus says, you're here to solicit the opinion of one that you believe to be a good human teacher in order to avoid obeying the one who really is good. Jesus says, be done with your academic debate. You know the answer is just do it. You see, friends, humanity's actually been doing this since the Garden of Eden. In the garden, what did the serpent do? The serpent shows up and asks the woman, did God actually say? Until that moment, friends, the command of God was abundantly clear. And the response was clear. Obedience. 
However, the serpent shows up and suggests the command, the command doesn't need to be obeyed, but it does need to be explained, interpreted, discussed, and debated. And you, man and woman, you should probably weigh in on this one and decide for yourself what is really good rather than simply obeying. Friends, up until that moment, the command was clear and the response was clear obedience. But the serpent shows up and goes, did God really say? And it became an academic debate that allowed them to avoid obedience. And the man here is doing the same thing. Friends, beware of making complex that which is simple. Beware of those who claim that things are unclear when they're actually abundantly clear. Beware of those who claim to be good teachers and yet would turn you away from obeying the good commands of God. Beware of hiding from the reality of simple obedience by going into speculation. The man who approached Jesus that day was looking for an academic discussion. He wasn't looking for an authoritative direction. He was only interested in opinion. This man was not interested in obedience. And don't we do the same things today? Friends, are you here looking for an opinion or are you here ready for obedience? Are you here treating God like some great teacher whose opinion you'll consider before you make your own judgment about what is good and evil? Or are you approaching Jesus today with the assumption that he is good and once you hear what he has to say, you're ready to obey it? You see, friends, we encounter in this story our most fundamental human problem. Our most fundamental human problem is not ignorance, it's obstinance. It's not that we're ignorant of what God has commanded, it's that we don't want to do it. And that's this man's problem. It's not that this man doesn't know what is good. It's that he doesn't want to do what is good. So, friends, as long as you can keep finding problems, as long as you can keep saying, well, is that really clear? As long as you can insist, well, this needs to be interpreted. As long as you can say, well, I just need another opinion to make this determination. Then you never actually have to obey God. Did God really say? Friends, too often our spiritual pursuits remain purely academic because we don't want to obey. So we muddy clear waters. We claim complexity where there's simplicity. We look for other good opinions that will allow us to continue believing and living as we desire. Church, our greatest problem is not ignorance. Our problem is obstinance. We don't want to know because, friends, if you admit that you know, if you admit that this is what God says, then all of a sudden you're obligated to obey it. And we just don't want to obey it. So we go, well, I don't really know what it means. And we muddy the clear waters. You see, because coming to Jesus, we find, friends, this man already knew the right answers. Coming to Jesus, we find that this man already knew it. He was trying to keep the pursuit purely academic, and he was trying to make unclear what was fundamentally clear, so that that way he could obey only that which fit his sensibilities and his desires. Because, friends, if we approach God with any less than an absolute willingness to obey him, whatever you personally desire, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I mean, look at what Jesus says in verse 17. He says, if you'd enter life, keep the commandments. I mean, he calls the man's bluff. 
If you want to enter life, obey the commandments. You already know the answer to your question, so stop discussing and start doing it. The problem is our human rebellion just runs so deep, and we find it in this young man, too. He's not done fighting for his independence. So he has the audacity to say, well, really, Jesus, I mean, which ones? I mean, that's not clear. So which ones do I have to obey? And which ones can I kind of, you know, put aside? I mean, seriously? It's really just another blatant attempt to avoid obedience. He's continuing to avoid an answer because, friends, if he gets an answer, he knows he's obligated to obey it. So he goes, this is really unclear. Really unclear here, Jesus. Which, which commandments? Church, beware of those who claim to be on a spiritual journey but are unwilling to ever arrive anywhere. You know, it sounds really spiritual to go, well, I'm on a spiritual journey. However, friends, this man was clearly on a spiritual journey and he didn't really want to arrive at a destination. Because to arrive at a destination, he was going to have to obligate himself. He was going to have to obey. So we should be humble in our beliefs and we should always be open to correction and growth. But this account makes clear this man was on a spiritual journey because he was unwilling to obey. And too often, like this young man, we do the same thing. We just keep journeying, we keep seeking, we keep discussing to avoid obeying. In fact, sometimes we're just continuing to journey because we're waiting for somebody to tell us what we want to hear. Friends, are you journeying today with an unwillingness to ever arrive? Because you need to understand, a journey is futile if you end up passing the destination. A journey is futile if you never come to a destination. Friends, will this young man miss the entrance to the kingdom of heaven? Will we miss it? In response to this man's inquiry, which commandments, which ones am I supposed to obey? Jesus lists almost entirely from the second table of the Ten Commandments. The first table of the Ten Commandments, the first four commandments, are all about our relationship to God. And the second table, the second uh, half of the commandments, are about our relationship to others. And that's what Jesus lists for him. In verses 18 and 19, he talks about the sixth commandment, you shouldn't murder. Seventh commandment, don't commit adultery. Eighth commandment, don't steal. Ninth commandment, don't bail false witness. Fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. And then he tacks on the summary commandment that we find in Leviticus 19, verse 18, love your neighbor as yourself. So was Jesus giving him a list? Was he limiting, going, well, these are the ones you're supposed to obey, the other ones? No, friends, what we find here is a merism. A merism is a figure of speech. It's when you list the parts to refer to the whole. I mean, if I was missing something and I told you, I have searched high and low for it, you'd be like, well, why didn't you look in the middle? No, no, you'd understand that if I told you I've searched high and low, I clearly mean I've searched everywhere. By giving you the parts, I'm saying, talking about the whole. And in the same way, Jesus lists the parts to refer to the whole. He goes, which ones are you supposed to keep? All of them. All of them. And look at the man's response in verse 20. The young man said to him, all of these I've kept. What do I still lack? Now, first of all, first of all, remember when this man came to Jesus, what did he come claiming? I don't know the way to eternal life. Now this man's going, oh yeah, I know the way and I've actually done it. Which is it? 
This man is exposed as just showing up to play games with Jesus. He knows the answer. And in fact, here he's claiming he's done the answer. And secondly, this man is left exposed as prideful. Because, friends, he has not kept the whole law. Because none of us can keep the whole law perfectly. As 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Friends, this man is both playing games with Jesus, and he stands prideful before Jesus. Friends, this puts the young man far from entering the kingdom of heaven. And you know, even if he had, even if he had kept all the commandments as he claimed, the Bible is clear in Romans chapter 8, verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. Friends, understand, God has given us the law as a mirror into which we might look to see how dirty we've become. The law is the standard against which we might be measured to make us aware of how far we fall short. The law is the straight against which we can measure ourselves to see how crooked we've become. Friends, the law wasn't given for our accomplishment. The law was given for our accusation. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. We cannot stand pridefully before the law because when we stand honestly before the law, every one of us, we are to be humbled before the law because the law reveals just how far, far short we fall of God's holiness. The law, when we look upon it, honestly reveals just how dirty we become, just how crooked our understandings have become. However, this young ruler, he refuses to be humbled before the law. He refuses to be humbled before Jesus. And now he stands proudly before Jesus and asserts his own goodness. I've done it. Friends, remember how the exchange began in verse 17. Jesus said there's only one who is good. And yet here's the man going, nope, I'm good. I determined what is good. I've done what is good. I am good. This man stands proudly before Jesus. Assured of his own goodness. And then he says, what do I lack? Humility. You lack humility. Remember, in the beginning of the encounter, Jesus said to the disciples, verse 14, Let the little children come, don't hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of God and eternal life is not achieved by the proud. Not achieved by those who are assured of their own personal assessment of what is good. Not confident of their personal ability to, to, to do good. The kingdom of heaven is for the humble. It's for those who receive it like children. Even as we sang today, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. And then, not the labors of my hands can fulfill the law's demands. Should my passion never fade and my efforts all be weighed, all for sin could not atone. You must save. You alone. Friends, the law reveals to us the truth. We are not good. And we are not God. The law is meant to humble us 
and drive us to the feet of the only one who is good. The only one who perfectly discerns and declares what is right and what is wrong. The only one who has perfectly accomplished the law. He is the only one who can save. And friends, this is the gospel. This is the good news. The gospel is that although you do not even know what is good, even though you have not done what is good, there is one who is good. And he has come to save you. The way to eternal life, the entrance to the kingdom of heaven is Jesus. That's what Jesus declares in verse 21. Jesus says to the man, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Friends, that's the important part. Follow me. Jesus is not saying an empty bank account is going to save this man. Friends, an empty bank account has never saved anyone. Jesus is saying, there's one thing you lack. Follow me. That's what you lack. I'm the way. However, something, Jesus says, stands in the way of you following me, and that is your riches. So humble yourself. Humble yourself truly before me, because only the humble can enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says to this man, you've come to me asking for something to do, that you can inherit eternal life. You claim you've already submitted to all of the Lord's other commands. Good, I'll give you something to do. Here, sell all. Distribute it to the poor because it's in your way. Then come follow me. And that was clearly not the command this man was looking for. While this ruler claimed that he was submissive and obedient to God, he said he was submissive and obedient to the law. Friends, the lawgiver himself now stands before him And gives him an unmistakably clear and direct command. There's something in the way of you following me. I'm the way to eternal life. But there's something in the way of you following me. So, submit that. Sell that. And then follow me. Friends, this man has come with preconditions. And I promise you, if you come with preconditions, those things that you are unwilling to give up, whatever they might be, You're unable to follow Jesus. Friends, the only way into the kingdom of heaven is to follow Jesus. And the only ones who can follow Jesus are those who have fully submitted without condition everything to Jesus. And are you so submitted to Jesus? You know, earlier this year, I saw some friends of mine had posted on Midcoast Message Board, which is a public Facebook group, and they were looking for a church. And they were soliciting recommendations from the community. However, in the post, they made their condition clear. They said, it must be an LGBTQ-affirming church, or we're not interested. Now, friends, that's a provocative example on purpose to ask you the question, do you have a precondition to following Jesus? Is there anything that you would say, well, Jesus, it doesn't matter what you say about this particular topic. I've already decided what's good. So I'll follow you, Jesus, unless, unless you command that. Because, 
Because, friends, this rich young ruler came to Jesus and he goes, you must be a rich man affirming rabbi or I'm not interested in following you. He came with a precondition. He'd already decided what was good. And he would not submit to anything that Jesus said otherwise. In verse 22, the young man heard it and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Friends, whether it's great possession, whether it's sexual self-determination, whether it's your self-autonomy, whether it's a political or social opinion, whether it's acceptance by the crowd or your own self-righteousness, there can be no preconditions to following Jesus. Because that thing, whatever it is, will become a barrier to you entering the kingdom of God. It will become a stumbling block to receiving what this young man said he sought, which was eternal life. The young man went away sorrowful. And the question is, will you? Now, those who witness this exchange are traumatized. The Jewish understanding of the Old Testament was that wealth was actually an indication of God's blessing. So their heads kind of exploded when Jesus turned and declared in verses 23 and 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. This rich young synagogue ruler was presumably blessed by God, so for him to be unable to enter the kingdom of heaven was unfathomable. And the traumatized crowd in verse 25 says, then who can be saved? Basically, if he's not getting in, what hope do any of us have? And Jesus looks at them in verse 26 and it says, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Because, friends, that is the gospel. That is the good news. The bad news is, no, none of us measure up. It doesn't matter your riches or your relationships or your rituals or your righteousness. None of us are going to make it in. It's impossible. But the gospel, the good news is that what we are powerless to do, God in his mercy has done for us. Christ has made the impossible possible. We simply must humble ourselves before Christ and let him lead because he's the entrance to the kingdom. He's the way to eternal life. The kingdom of heaven is not entered by earning or deserving. It's only entered by those who come like children willing to give it all up and humbly receive and follow Jesus into the kingdom. Christ has made possible what is impossible for us. Friends, have you humbly submitted your belief, your obedience, your heart, your life without condition to following Jesus? Is there anything that hinders you from following him? Anything that stands in the way of you entering his kingdom? And in verse 27, Peter replies, he says, see, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? So there's Peter stands up in the crowd and goes, oh, well, Jesus, Jesus, what about us? That rich man, he was unwilling, but we, we gave up our homes and our family and our jobs and our wealth and our rights to follow you. We came on your terms, Jesus. Do we qualify for eternal life? What is, it that, what is there for us in your kingdom? 
In verse 28, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you who followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, this statement about sitting on thrones and judging the twelve tribes of Israel, it's not completely clear what Jesus means here, but remember that just because we might not understand everything about a passage doesn't mean we can't understand anything about it. What is clear about this passage is Jesus says to the twelve, those who would follow me into into my kingdom will in some way participate in my kingly reign. They'll some way share in my authority. And Jesus goes on to say that not only will they share in my reign, those who follow me will share in the blessings of the family of Jesus Christ in this life. Verse 29, everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. So Jesus says, yeah, in this life you may lose biological family, but I promise you a hundredfold family in this life. A family that transcends time and transcends nations. A family without number and without end. I promise you the blessing of my family, the church. And moreover, Jesus concludes in verse 29, and you'll inherit eternal life. And friends, even right there in that statement is the gospel. You'll inherit eternal life. Inheritance is not earned. Inheritance is freely received. Eternal life is an inheritance received by children. It is grace, not by works, given to those who follow Jesus Christ into his kingdom. And friends, the question that Peter's asking here at the end of this account is really the question, is following Jesus a good deal? Considering what we're going to have to give up, considering what must be laid down, considering what must be sacrificed, is following Jesus a good deal? And to that end, I'm blown away by the answer that was given by a pastor by the name of Sam Albury. Sam Albury is a pastor in the United Kingdom, a speaker and an author. And also Sam Albury has been same-sex attracted his whole life. And I recently read an article by him in the Gospel Coalition called, How Can the Gospel Be Good News to Gays? He writes about how he came to Jesus, he heard God's clear, unequivocal teachings about human sexuality, and his sexual desires came up against obedience to what he believes Christ commands. And like the rich young ruler in today's passage, Albury stood before Christ and heard him say, Sell all, give it up, and follow me. And unlike the rich young ruler, Albury chose to submit and surrender all of his preconditions, his sexual self-determination, and his whole life and to follow Jesus. And to this day, Albury lives a celibate life and tells others, you know what? Jesus is worth everything I've given up to follow him. He concluded this article saying, my main point is this. The moment you think following Jesus will be a poor deal for someone, you call Jesus a liar. Discipleship is not always easy. Leaving everything cherished behind is profoundly hard, but Jesus is always worth it. And friends, that's the question, no matter what your issue is, no matter what your struggle is, no matter what stands in the way, that is the question that faces every single one of us. Is Jesus worth it? Is Jesus worth surrendering whatever that thing is for you? 
Is Jesus worth surrendering those preconditions? Is he worth surrendering your personal right to decide what is good? Is he, right, is he, is he worth surrendering your selfish greed? Is he worth surrendering your sexual self-determination? Is he worth surrendering your self-righteous pride? Is he worth it? Is Jesus worth it to sell all, to give it all away, whatever it is, so that you can follow him? Is Jesus worth it? And Alberry came to the conclusion, yes, Jesus is always worth it. Whatever I've had to give up for him, it's worth it. And friends, can you say the same thing? Can you say the same thing, that Jesus is worth more than anything you might surrender to follow him? Jesus is more beautiful than anything you might give up to have him. Jesus is more valuable than anything you might sacrifice to own him. Jesus is a treasure so wonderful that anything else that you now treasure, you're willing to give up so that you might have him. We're going to close the service by singing, Mine are keys to Zion City, where beside the King I walk. For there my heart has found its treasure. Christ is mine forevermore. Friends, eternally, those who follow Jesus and enter and walk with the King in His kingdom find that Christ is the treasure. He is mine forevermore. And friends, that He is worth it. That He is a treasure worth anything else that you must lay down in order to obey Him and to follow Him. So friends, what stands in the way? What stands in the way of you today following and fully treasuring Jesus Christ? For He is the way into the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Father, thank You. Thank You for Your Son who is a treasure far better than any other treasure we might cling to. Father, we cling to these other things thinking that they'll give us satisfaction, purpose, meaning, identity, thinking that they might give us life. But only Christ is such a treasure. Only Christ is a treasure that will last eternally. A treasure worth sacrificing all other treasures for. A pearl of great price worth selling everything else that we might have. Father, if there's anything that stands in our way of following, if there's anything right now that hinders us, if there's anything that we're clinging to, oh, Father, make us willing. May we stop journeying, stop muddying the waters, stop claiming unclarity when there's perfect clarity. Lead us to obey. Lead us to follow. And lead us to possess Jesus Christ, who is our great reward. In his name we pray. Amen. In closing.